0: I want to welcome you um, to our Christmas Eve service. We're actually tonight in the, uh, in the fourth week of a, a nine-week series that we're calling Belief in the Age of Skepticism. This series is, um, really just has one goal. It's about communicating the truth of Christianity in a way that builds your faith. And so we've been each week kind of looking at foundations of the Christian belief and um, we lined it up so that tonight on Christmas Eve, we would be talking about the um, the incarnation. Uh, and so in case you were wondering, a, a buddy of mine actually texted me uh, last night, and he asked me if if tonight's teaching was going to be, um, he wanted to know if it was going to be part of the series or, and, and these are his words, uh, a one-off Ryan Cox holiday special. Uh, I'm happy to announce both. It's going to be both. Uh, I, I, as long as I, you know, God lets me preach, I can't ever see not going over the Luke 2 birth narrative on Christmas Eve but just feel really odd to me. So let me go ahead and read um, Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 14. Uh, We'll get into that, and and then we'll get rolling. It says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. This first registration took place while Cerenus was governing Syria. So everyone went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and family line of David to be registered along with Mary who was engaged to him and was pregnant. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Then she gave birth to her firstborn son and she wrapped him snugly in cloth and laid him in a feeding trough because there was no room for them at the lodging place. In the same region... Shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today a Savior, who is Messiah the Lord, was born for you in the city of David. This will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in cloth and lying in a feeding trough. Suddenly there was a multitude of the heavenly hosts with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors. This is God's word. In our uh, late modern secular culture, that's how sociologists will kind of describe us at this point. Um, when you read account, an account as fantastic as the one that I just read to you, there's two questions that immediately come to the fore that you have to deal with. The first is, did this really happen? And the second is, if so, what does it really mean? Um, first off, did this really happen? What, what I mean is, is it, is it actually reasonable to believe that, that the account that I just read to you, the, the, the historical account that the Son of God entered into human history and took on flesh is something that fantastic sounding actually reasonable to believe. The reason that you have... Uh, uh, to wrestle with a question like that is because of how skeptical people are about miracles in our culture. And even if you're not, I can promise you that people close to you are. And so if you want to communicate your faith in a way that really makes sense to them, um, you're going to need to wrestle with this question because it's not enough to say, well, I believe because I believe because I believe because somebody told me one time when I was a kid. You need more than that. So we have to ask that question, "Did, did this really happen? But then right along with that, the other question that needs to be dealt with is, if so, what does this mean? Because if it's true that God has entered human history and taken on flesh, I don't have to tell you that has thundering implications for how you and I should live our lives. And so these two questions go hand in hand. Did this really happen? And if so, what does this really mean? And and it's those two questions that I want to walk through during our time together this evening. So first and foremost, did this really happen? Most people... In our culture, if you ask them about Jesus, we'll say something like this. They'll say, Jesus was a good man. He was a wise teacher. He was a moral figure, an inspiring example. Um, But as time went on, his followers developed higher and higher views of him, um, started to speculate that maybe he was more than just a man. Maybe he was divine. Some miracle stories got attached to his name. And then as the centuries went on and the story sort of evolved and took shape of its own, um, those accounts got written down, became what we refer to now as our New Testament, and there you have Christianity. Uh, that's a really common um, perception. It's sort of a, um, a mixture of what you'll hear in Religion 101, Philosophy 101, and the Da Vinci Code. Uh, the only problem with that account of Christianity is that absolutely every aspect of it is entirely wrong. And to explain what I mean, what I want, want to do... Um, is go back just one chapter, and I'm going to read to you Luke's introduction to his own gospel account. Just the first four verses. He said, Many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the Word handed them down to us. It also seemed good to me, since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first, to write to you in an orderly sequence Most Honorable Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. A number of things going on there, but but let me just draw your attention uh, to a few of them. First off, what's clear is that Luke was writing his entire gospel account primarily to someone that he refers to as Most Honorable Theophilus, who was evidently uh, an educated and cultured individual. What that means is that when, wrote, when, when Luke wrote his gospel account, he wrote it expecting um, educated and fairly cultured people to be reading it. People who, much like I'm sure all of you joining me here tonight or whoever's on the other side of the screen right now, Um, were unwilling to simply check their intellect at the door in order to follow Jesus and believe Christianity. And so what what Luke is saying in the first four verses of his gospel account is, is very simply this. He's saying, listen, I would not believe the story that I'm about to tell you if it required blind faith to believe, and I wouldn't expect anybody else to believe it either. What Luke begins his entire account of the of the birth, life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Gospel according to Luke, he begins the entire thing um, by saying that his account is based on the carefully investigated eyewitness accounts of men and women who were still alive during the time of his writing. And so, what I'd like to do, based on that, is offer you three reasons that that, that explanation of Christianity I gave you on the front end is wrong. I'd like to give you three reasons why I believe it is intellectually irresponsible um, to dismiss Luke's gospel account and specifically the story of the incarnation of Jesus Christ as just some sort of legend that we use to warm ourselves by once a year so that we can get a couple of warm and fuzzies. Uh, I'll give you the the three reasons on the front end. First off, um, this account is, is, is... you really can't dismiss this easily as a legend because number 1 the timing's too early number 2 the content is too counterproductive and number 3 the literary style is too detailed so let me walk through these three things real briefly here first off the timing is too early <clears throat> when we talk about something being a legend, a legend uh, uh, is, is basically defined as an account that is written so long after the events that it describes that no one can really prove whether or not the account is true or false. So, for instance, I, I found this interesting. I just learned this week that um, King Arthur, who you've probably heard of before, if King Arthur lived at all, he lived around the year 500 A.D., But the first accounts we have of King Arthur were written some 400 years after his life. And so we refer to that as a legend because there's really no way of knowing whether any of it is true or false. Um, You may find this interesting, you may find this encouraging, but historians basically universally agree And I mean, uh, uh, Christian and non-Christian historians, religious and secular historians, nearly universally agree that Luke wrote his gospel account just 25 to 40 years after the death of Jesus. Now, what that means is that Luke was writing this while the eyewitnesses that he names in his his account were still alive. So basically what Luke is, is, is saying here, he's saying, I'm giving you every reason to poke holes in my story. And if you come across anything that you doubt in my account, all you need to do is go to the people that I mentioned by name. And if they tell you that I'm lying, then you have permission to call me a liar. I don't have to tell you, that's an insane thing to do if you know that you're just making this whole account up. So the first reason that it's really difficult to dismiss this as simply a legend is because the timing's too early. But, but secondly and I actually find this even more compelling, is that the content is too counterproductive. So another uh, common objection to the gospel accounts that you'll hear sounds something like this, that the gospel accounts of Jesus' life cannot be trusted because the authors who wrote them did so with an agenda. They were Christians, and they wanted people to believe what they believed. So because of the ulterior motive there, you shouldn't trust anything that they write down. To me, that, that sounds, at least at first, like a fairly devastating cr- critique, but here's the problem with that. If you know anything about the way that first century Jewish people thought, then you know that Luke would have never, he would have never made up a story that sounded like this if he was trying t- to manipulate and mislead them. Take the, 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 uh, the birth story that we're looking at tonight. If you were gonna make up a story that you hoped would mislead first-century Jewish people, first and foremost, you would never say that the Son of God became a human being. Um, Jewish worldview in Luke's day and even today was vehemently against the idea that a human being could be divine uh, and therefore worthy of worship. And that's why if you read through the gospel accounts, you'll notice that it's that specific claim that got Jesus killed. You know, In the midnight trial, hours before the crucifixion, um, it's when Jesus claimed in no uncertain terms, and the re- religious leaders heard it with their own ears, that he claimed to be God. It's at that moment that they said, okay, this trial's over, we need no further testimony, we have enough to murder Jesus with that claim right there. They were not into the idea that a human being could also be divine. But if, if you were going to try to sell them on that idea, let's say that, that, that you were already gonna try to go that route, If you were going to try to sell first century Jewish people on this idea that a human being was divine, you would never say that his parents were an unwed, poverty-stricken couple from a town with as bad a reputation as Nazareth. And let me go a step further here because it just sounds more and more ridiculous. And you would certainly never say that he was conceived out of wedlock. And, and not only that, but, but you noticed, who does Luke say are the first eyewitnesses to this? You know, the, the people to whom the angelic host announced the coming of the boy who was Lord? Shepherds. You're going to hear me say more about this later, but this is in a day and age when shepherds were so looked down on that their testimony wasn't even admissible in court. So, so think of it this way. If you're writing this story and you're saying, uh, you know, God announced his, his entrance into humanity, he sent an angelic host, all you got to do is ask the shepherds, the first thought a first century Jewish person is going to think is, hang on a second, we don't believe shepherds' testimony about anything, and I'm supposed to suddenly give credence to their testimony that God has just entered human history? It's ridiculous. And so the point is, if Luke is making this up, He's deliberately working against himself. He's deliberately making this story as offensive and unbelievable sounding as possible. And so the point is that the most reasonable explanation for why Luke wrote the story this way is because this is how it actually happened. But thirdly, if you don't find that compelling, the the, the third thing I point out here is that the literary style is too detailed. Let let, let me draw your attention to this. At the beginning of the birth narrative, Luke tells us that this whole account happened. The birth of Jesus happened while, verse 2, a man named Kirinus was governing Syria. Let me just ask you the question, how does that detail contribute to the story overall? The answer is it does not in any way, shape, or form. It does not matter at all who was governing Syria while God entered human history. It doesn't add to it and it doesn't take away, which is a really significant thing for literary experts. Uh, because what they'll tell you is, which I'm not, but if any are listening right now, they'll confirm what I'm saying. People who are real acquainted with specifically ancient fiction will point out that you never saw things like that when you read ancient fiction. Meaning, you never saw accounts that included details that did not contribute to the, to the, to the overall message. Now, we see that all the time in modern fiction. Uh, Modern authors, when writing fiction, will include details like that to kind of give it an air of reality, but the point is nobody thought that way or wrote that way 2,000 years ago. And so the only reason that you would see details like this, which all four gospel accounts are totally littered with, the only reason those would be included is because that's exactly how an eyewitness remembered it. Uh, C.S. Lewis, who was an atheist who um, converted to Christianity after he studied it for himself, he actually was. Um, a literary expert. He was a professor of literature at, at um, Oxford and Cambridge, and, and uh, here's how he put it. He put it better than I ever could. He said, I have been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, and myths all of my life, and I know what they're like, and I know none of them are like this. Of the gospel texts, there are only two possible views. Either this is reportage, meaning these events actually happened as the authors recorded them, or some unknown ancient writer without known predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern, novelistic, realistic narrative. The reader who doesn't see this has simply not learned how to read. I think that last statement is rude, but I didn't make this up, so take that up with C.S. Lewis. But here's the point. When you approach Luke's gospel account, or, 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 or any of the gospel accounts about Jesus' life, you can say, I think they made the whole thing up. But, but it begs the question, how could Luke have simply made this up just 25 years after the events he's describing while the eyewitnesses that he names were still alive? This whole thing would have fallen apart before it ever had a chance to get off the ground. You can say, uh, you know, we can't trust these accounts because they were written by people who had an agenda. But again, if the gospel writers had that agenda, then why are they intentionally recording this in a way that would have been offensive to the very audience they were trying to persuade? You can say whatever you'd like when you approach these gospel accounts, but, but let me offer you what I'm convinced Luke would say if he were alive today. What Luke would say is, you should not believe my gospel account just because it's it's exciting, even though it is. You should not believe my gospel account because it'll meet your needs, even though it will. And you should not believe my gospel account because it can give you hope, even though it can. There's exactly one reason to believe this gospel account. It's because it's true. If this story was just a myth, if a story this fantastic was just a myth, it would have never survived, survived past Luke's lifetime, but it did. And it survived past the lifetimes of the entire first generation of Jesus' followers. Men and women, many of whom were persecuted and gave their lives rather than deny the truth about Jesus. And after surviving their lifetimes, history tells us that this message transformed the entire Roman Empire. And here we are 2,000 years later in a part of the world that Luke didn't even know existed. And every year, billions of people are still celebrating the birth of the one Jewish rabbi, who claims something that no other founder of any other major belief system dared to claim, which is not just that he came here to help you find God, but that he was God, and he came all this way to find you. Now, I don't know if you find any of that compelling, if you've heard these arguments before or what's going on in your mind right now, but everything that I've said up to this point, I've said to simply make this one statement. Any intellectually responsible person should investigate the incarnation of Jesus Christ because there are very good reasons for believing that it really did happen. But as I said on the front end of our time together, it's not enough to simply believe this as a naked historical fact because if this actually happened and it did happen, this has incredible implications for everything about our lives and this life generally. And so what I'd like to do now with the rest of the time that we have is simply answer the question, what does Christmas mean? mean? And the truth is I could spend the rest of my life trying to answer that question and and just barely scratching the surface, but I just want to offer you two ideas before we all get on with with whatever stuff we have going on today. First off, what does Christmas mean? Number one, this is our first idea, Christmas means that satisfaction can finally be found. One of the things that's always stood out to me about this birth narrative is that the angels, uh, when they announced. That, that the boy who was Lord just enter into hu- human history, they told the shepherds that there was a sign that would help them identify Jesus. You read this in verse 12. It says, this will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in cloth and lying in a feeding trough. So, so the sign that they were given was that this boy would be laying in a feeding trough. I, I, I've always thought if you could just kind of get into the perspective of the shepherds for a moment, that that would have been completely surprising to you. That, that you're a shepherd out in the field. You know, God hasn't really spoken through a prophet in about 400 years to your people. An angelic host appears before you and tells you God has arrived. He didn't just send a messenger. He came down here himself and he says, okay, and there's a sign so that you'll be able to identify the boy. I, I just don't think that that is what you think the sign would be, that he's laying in a feeding trough. This is God in the flesh. I would think he floats, he glows, he reads thoughts, he, you know, he can do backflips or something. I don't know, something that would indicate that this boy is special. But of all the signs, it's that he's lying in a feeding trough in the town of Bethlehem. And like everything else I read in scripture, that begs the question for me, why? Why is it that of all the ways that, that, that God could have made his, his arrival, did he decide to be laid in a feeding trough in the town of Bethlehem? Just, just, just follow me here for a minute because this will be important later. Bethlehem, the name of the town that Jesus was born into, that name literally means the house of bread. And a feeding trough like the one in which Jesus was laid was a device. It only had one one specific purpose. It was designed to satisfy the hunger and the thirst of animals in Jesus' day. And the fact that this was the sign attached to the birth of Jesus tells us something incredibly significant about what it is that he came down here to do. Uh, for the second, and it'll be the last time today, I want to read a, a quote to you from our guy, C.S. Lewis. Um, this has always really spoken to me, and maybe this will mean something to somebody else. He said, Most people, if they've really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want, and want acutely, something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. I'm not now speaking of what would be ordinarily called unsuccessful marriages or holidays or learned careers. I'm speaking of the best possible ones. Then he said, Our lifelong nostalgia Our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off, our longing to be on the inside of some door which we've always seen from the outside is no mere neurotic fantasy but the truest index of our real situation. This is all he's saying, and I know this is going to hit home for somebody tonight. All Lewis is saying there is that if you live long enough to get some of the things that you really wanted, Some of the things that once upon a time you told yourself, if I could just get my hands on that, then I would be happy, then I'd be fulfilled, then my life can begin, whatever. If you live long enough to actually get your hands on those things, what we all eventually discover is that we were born with desires that nothing in this world can satisfy. And what we all do on autopilot is... We have this tendency to believe the craziest sounding lie in the world when you actually articulate it. It sounds like this. Maybe if I just had more of what has never satisfied me, then I would be satisfied. Sounds crazy when you say it out loud. But that is how the human heart operates on autopilot. And it is, I don't have to tell you because I know you know, it is such an exhausting way to live. I say all that to say that Jesus was laid in a feeding trough to show us that he came to be the answer to that way of life for people who were tired of living that way. About three decades after his birth, people began asking, okay, who is Jesus? He spoke with an authority that they'd never heard before. He performed signs and wonders that could not be easily explained away. And so, understandably, people leaned in, crowds followed him, and they all asked the question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And in John's gospel account, Jesus answered that question in a very specific way that pointed back to and really illuminated why angels said to shepherds that this was the sign of his birth. You read about this in John chapter 6, verse 35. I am the bread of life, Jesus told them. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. What Jesus just claimed there, this is one of many times he did it, specifically in John's gospel account, is something that no one other than God could claim. Jesus is is not simply saying that he knows what could satisfy you or even that he has what could satisfy you. What he's saying is that he came down here to be the end to your search for satisfaction himself. And so let me answer the question that I posed on the front end. Why was Jesus born in a town known as the house of bread? He just told you why, because he's the bread of life, came to be broken for us so that we broken people might be made whole in him. And the reason he was laid in a feeding trough to the first people given the privilege of meeting him was because he came to satisfy the hunger and the thirst of our souls, that's what Christmas means it means that satisfaction can finally be found now as, as incredible as that is to me that idea in and of itself is incomplete because just knowing that satisfaction can be found still leaves a lot that needs to be answered do I need to do something to get that do I need to accomplish something or go somewhere or is there what's what's needed what's required on my part in order for this satisfaction to be available to someone like me and, and this brings us to what I've you know, I've been doing this for about nine years now. What I'm about to share with you is, is what, after studying this birth announcement for all these years, what I consider to be the most surprising part of Luke's account. All right, let me zoom out again and just give you the details surrounding the deliverance of God into humanity. Here's, here's what Luke tells us. A decree came out from Caesar that forced everyone to get registered in their hometown. Because Mary was betrothed to, jo- to Joseph, she needed to go with him to his hometown, which was the town of Bethlehem. Because they were traveling extremely late in Mary's pregnancy, they got to Bethlehem behind everybody else. Because they got to Bethlehem behind everybody else, there was no room in the inn for them. And because there was no room in the inn for them, Jesus Christ, the Savior of humanity, the boy who was the Lord, Was born outside without a roof over his head. Now, when you come at the story like that, if you're willing to be honest, that looks like a a very poorly executed plan. I I was telling the 2 p.m. service. Scripture says that God has no beginning. That means he had a lot of time to think about how he wanted to make his debut down here. And the way that I read those details, it it just kind of seems like you know the whole thing kind of snuck up on him and he forgot about it and just kind of had to get down here, get it done. But the truth is when you, when, when you really pay, pay careful attention to what's happening here, that every detail of Jesus' entrance into humanity had God's fingerprints all over it and it was all orchestrated by God for one very specific and I, and I think incredibly profound and encouraging reason. It's so that shepherds could have access to Jesus. It's, if, if a single detail from this story had been changed, if Caesar had not sent out that decree... If Mary had been betrothed to a man from another hometown, if she had gotten pregnant at a different time in her life, if they had gotten to Bethlehem faster than they did, if if anything was different, then those shepherds, they might have been able to hear about what God had just done for humanity, but they would have been left out in the cold. They could have never gotten to Jesus. And so what what all of this is meant to show us is, is that God is going to absolutely limitless lengths to meet people not where they should be, but exactly as they are. This brings us to our second, and it'll be our final idea during our time together. Number two, Christmas means that hope is within reach. <clears throat> the fact that God did all this for shepherds, to me, only becomes more amazing and, and, and more encouraging when you consider what shepherds were like in Luke's day. Because you'd be hard-pressed to find uh, you know, people on a, on a lower rung you know, in, in society's eyes. All right, uh, professionally... Nobody wanted to be a shepherd. If, if you were a shepherd, it's because your plans for your life didn't work out the way that you wanted them to. You know, socially, shepherds were seen as outcasts. Their job kept them moving around to the point they couldn't really form deep and meaningful relationships. Because of that, everywhere they went, people kind of viewed them with an, uh, a, a suspicious eye um, to the point that, like I mentioned earlier, their testimonies weren't even admissible in court. And beyond that, even in a, a, a moral sense, a spiritual sense, um, shepherds were thought to be ceremonially unclean because their jobs kept them from being able to observe the religious laws in, um, in, 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 in Luke's day. And so my, my point is, just to kind of bring this down to where we live, if you've, if, if you've ever woken up and felt like your life didn't turn out the way that you wanted it to, like whatever you planned for your life, it, 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 it just didn't work out and you're not where you thought you were gonna be, you know exactly what it's like to be a shepherd. They felt like that every day of their life. You know if 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 you've ever known what it's like to feel like you're on the outside, to feel lonely, to feel isolated, to feel like people have kind of made up their mind about you without bothering to get to know you, you know exactly what it's like to be a shepherd because they were treated that way everywhere they went. And if you've ever gone through life carrying around the horrible burden of wondering if God could forgive someone like you, if there was room in his family for someone like you, if he actually could love someone like you. I'll just tell you, you know exactly what it's like to be a shepherd, but that's what makes this story so precious. That's what makes this story so encouraging, so inspiring, because if if any of that sounds like any of you, if any of that hits home with you, then what God is saying to people and has been saying to people for 2,000 years through this story is that you're exactly the kind of person That He's come down here for what every detail this story is showing us is that Jesus Christ goes to limitless lengths to meet people Not where they should be but exactly where they are. That's what Christmas means. It means that he's near to you He's available to you and that hope is within reach We're almost at the end of our time together um What I wanted to do before I I send you on your way today is um close with a, a story that I've never shared with you before. Um, it's a, you know, it's a pretty personal story, so just, you know, hopefully it doesn't get weird uh, if I get a little bit vulnerable here on, on, um, on Christmas Eve. Um, if, if you've been at this church for any length of time, you know that before I, I was a pastor here, I was a career firefighter for um, Anne Arundel County. And to be a career firefighter in this county, you had to get accepted to and graduate from something called the Fire Academy. The problem with that is um, they only run those classes so often, and when they do, there's only so many spaces available. And so it took me, uh, you know, constantly applying, constantly making phone calls, constantly sitting for interviews. It took me about two and a half years uh, before I was invited to the academy. I remember the phone call uh, like it was yesterday. It's just, you know, one of those things that you probably never forget. Um, But it's funny. Because even though I'd been working toward that for two and a half years, when I actually got the call and I actually got into the academy, I was completely unprepared for what I experienced. Um, I remember, uh, specifically on the beginning of the the academy, just feeling incredibly overwhelmed like I never had at any time in my life. Um, And it wasn't because of the work. I mean, physically, I was capable of doing the job. Uh, Intellectually, you don't need to be a genius to put wet stuff on the red stuff is what they called it. So I didn't fail any of my written tests. It wasn't about that. Um, The hardest part for me that nobody prepared me for, and I don't think anybody could have prepared me for, is that, you know... After I I got this job, after working for it for two and a half years and thinking about it for two and a half years and praying about it and literally dreaming about it for two and a half years, is that when I finally got my hands on this job, when I finally put on the recruit uniform and sat in the academy that I've been envisioning for two and a half years, when I was finally there, I felt something that I had never felt before in my life. I felt like for the first time I actually had something to lose. And I, I was telling the other service, nobody ever talks about that. You know, we we live in, a, in every Disney movie tells you the same thing. It's it's like one of the hallmarks of our culture: pursue your dreams, follow your dreams, have the courage to chase your dreams. It's great, but nobody nobody talks about what it feels like when you actually get your hands on what you've been running after. And I don't know if this means to any any if anybody will get this other than me. But I'll tell you what I learned from personal experience is that dreams are so they're so. Beautiful from a distance, they're so attractive from a distance, but they they feel so fragile when you're actually holding them in your hands. And so I remember specifically on the front end of the academy, I I would make myself almost physically ill just thinking about you know this internal dialogue. I I, I would tell myself, Ryan, what if you fail? What if after all this time you you can't hack it? You fail out of this academy, and you let your family down, you let your friends down, you let all the people who have prayed for you down you know, and let yourself down. And I actually, I had a plan in place that if, if I told myself, if I fell out of the academy, I just wasn't gonna go home. I was gonna go right to a recruiter. I was gonna get as far away as fast as possible. And I was telling the last service, in case there's any, you know, psychologist listening to me right now, I'm sure that somebody's psychoanalyzing me and thinking about all my issues. I'll just tell you, it's far worse than you can imagine so you don't have to bring them to me after the service. The point is, I put all this terrible pressure on myself but I remember I was, I was living with my dad at the time. And every day I would leave the academy, I would go home and I would go upstairs in his house and we would sit in this room and I would iron my uniform and I would polish my boots and I would just talk to my dad. And every single day I did that, I felt, I felt like I could do this. Every single time I got to talk to my dad, I felt like, okay, I can do this for one more day. I, I, can, I can clock back in. I can put one foot in front of the other. And I remember when I would feel the most overwhelmed during the days in the academy, I would tell myself, Ryan, you're going to be okay because no, no matter how bad today is, at the end of this, you're going to get to go home and you're going to talk to your dad. And that is how I got through the fire academy. And I, I, I just ask you to consider while we close today, uh, just, just please consider this, that if my dad being available to me meant that I could get through a difficult time in my life, would you please consider, before we all move on from this, would you please consider how much more Christmas is offering you? Because the the story of Christmas, the story of the incarnation, means that God has moved mountains to be near you, that he's moved mountains to be available to you, that he's moved mountains to be within your reach. And if the fact that my dad was near me meant that I could get through a rough day, then the fact that the God of the universe has entered human history to be near you means that you can get through anything. It means that you can get through suffering and you can get through pain and you can get through loss and you can get through hardship and you can get through unanswered questions and you can get through life and you can even get through death because the gospel says that Jesus Christ went through all of those things for you and he has promised to walk through all of those things with you if you will simply do what the shepherds in this story did, which is go to him and get to know him and investigate him and learn to love him and trust him and follow him, the one who came all this way to be available to you. That's what Christmas means. Merry Christmas, Severin. That's it. That's all. Let me pray for us. Father God, I want to thank you that Christmas means that, that satisfaction can finally be found. I wanna thank you that hope is, is finally within reach, but more than anything else, Father, thank you that this story is true, that it's not legends, that it can be trusted, that it's been transforming people's lives for the last 2,000 years. And I would ask tonight, God, if there's, if there's just one person in the position that, that those shepherds were in, God, I'd ask that your light would shine so brightly in their life that they'd be powerless except to see it, and that they'd do what those shepherds did, that they'd go to you, that they'd go to Jesus, and they'd get to know him, fall in love with him, trust him, and follow him, have their life transformed by him, the way he's been transforming the lives of men and women for the last 2,000 years. In the name of Jesus, we ask these things. Amen.